Welcome to Career Buzz, the unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. Today on your show, Jobs in Sustainability, Career Stories from Engineering Graduate Students Tackling Climate Change. Hey, I'm Mark Franklin, practice leader of a team of professional career counselors at Career Cycles and co-founder of One Life Tools, and I'm pleased to be your host today on Career Buzz, today in partnership with the Options Program at U of T. Special welcome to our live virtual audience of University of Toronto students. Thank you, students, and thank you for tuning in today. We hear about the effects of climate change and environmental problems everywhere we turn. So naturally, people are seeking ways to solve those problems in their work and careers. Today, we hear insights, tips, and career stories from four professionals working in sustainability, climate change, net zero, clean energy, and more. Abraham Wyrasal is a senior energy consultant at the City of Toronto. He's also a registered energy advisor through Natural Resources Canada and a net zero energy advisor. Previously, he worked at EcoFit, GreenSaver, and as an environmental advisor in Tanzania. With an undergrad in environmental engineering, Abraham has two masters, one in social and sustainable business management and another in civil engineering from U of T. Alison Traub works for the Ontario Ministry of Energy. She leads research and policy development on climate change adaptation and mitigation in the energy sector. With an undergrad in environmental science, Alison earned a master's of chemical engineering at U of T, specializing in environment and health, during which she helped establish best practices for measuring air pollution toxicity. Anton Sediaco is an innovation scout focusing on sustainability at the Carl Zeiss Innovation Hub in Germany. He brings new research from idea to product through partnerships with startups, research teams, and universities. Earlier, Anton worked in Sweden advising on new electric vehicle designs, self-driving systems, and new battery development. He earned a PhD at U of T in nanomaterials for clean energy and a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering. And finally, Nadia Morrison is a research analyst at Corporate Nights magazine. There, she contributes to uh, corporate sustainability rankings and research reports. She uses research skills and sustainability knowledge to improve environmental and social impacts. Nadia earned a PhD in environmental bi microbiology and to support her sustainability skills and careers. Nadia earned a Climate Change Policy and Practice Certificate, the LEED Green Associate Certification, and the Fundamentals of Sustainability Accounting Credential. Thank you, panelists, all for joining us here today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we'll start with a, a robust panel discussion, and then I'll open it up to questions from our live audience. Let's start with your present career and role, everyone, and what you like about the work that you're doing. Abraham Wyrasal, let's start with you. What do you like about your present work, and, and what is your present work? Sure. Thanks, Mark, and it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me here. So my present work, as you mentioned, is a senior energy consultant at the City of Toronto, and I'm working with the residential uh, public energy initiative for existing buildings. What that means is I'm helping homeowners, City of Toronto homeowners, to get to net zero by 2040 because that's our strategy that's laid out in our policy. So as a resident, uh, registered energy advisor, I give technical expertise to not only our City of Toronto team members, but also to uh, other uh, companies that we work with, such as Toronto Hydro and um, 
provide expertise in terms of how to get to net zero by 2040 for single family residential homes. Big challenge. Thanks, Abraham, and welcome. Um, Alison Trobe, over to you. What do you like about your work? And, and in a few sentences, what are you doing? Hi, thanks, Mark. So uh, as, as was mentioned in the bio, I'm currently a senior policy advisor with the Ontario Ministry of Energy, where I lead the climate change file. So working a lot on climate change adaptation and also mitigation in the sector. Um, I think what I really like about my role right now is there's lots of room for learning and growth. Um, and because I work in a, in a research team, um, I get to work at the intersection of science policy and, and a focus on research, which is um, where my uh, kind of technical skills really lie. Um, and of course, I get to work on an issue that I'm really passionate about, which I really like. Nice. Thanks, Allison. And uh, Anton Sediaco in Germany, over to you. What do you like about your work and what are you doing? Thanks, Mark. And yeah, as you mentioned, I'm an innovation scout with Carl Zeiss. And what that entails is looking past today's problems, uh, 5, 10, 20 years down the line, uh, trying to figure out how we can solve some of those problems with new technology development and new ideas and partnering with research groups and building up those ideas from today's research to tomorrow's applications. And I think the best part really is actually having that chance to make a make an impact with real solutions because that was always frustrating for me as a grad student, having these ideas and doing this research but never having that pathway just past the publication. So being able to support that and work together with the students and companies is really rewarding. Nice, thanks Anton. And uh, finally, Nadia Morrison, over to you. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, so I'm a research analyst at Corporate Knights, and I work on uh, collecting, analyzing, and uh, developing methodologies and taxonomies to um, improve corporate sustainability, as well as um, you know measuring progress towards targets for cities and countries towards sustainability. And I really enjoy it because I, like Allison, am at the intersection of research and um, kind of the corporate world in a way as well. So I really enjoy that I'm able to use all the research and technical skills that I gained from my PhD and apply that to, uh, to the corporate space. Nice. Thanks, everyone. So let's, let's um, hear a little bit of the, the twists and turns that brought you here. There's often a story behind the role and uh, often there are turning points. So I'd like to find out a little bit about your story, if you could pick one or two key turning points. And I know people are always wondering, how does your education, especially the graduate work that you've done, how does that play into the story um, and how that supported you, either the formal education or even the certifications and other um, training that you've done? So let's go in, in reverse order here, um, Nadia Morrison. What's a couple of turning points in your career story? Yeah, um, there were definitely this one notable one for me. Um, so as I mentioned, or as was mentioned in my bio, I did my PhD studying uh, soil and groundwater bacteria that are used to remediate contaminated sites. And I went to a technical conference and I stumbled into a panel on sustainable remediation. And it wasn't until that point that I had really thought, wow, like sustainability is so applicable to every single field and we should all be thinking about how we can tackle climate change. Um, and it kind of got me spiraling on a, in a bit of a, a rabbit hole. So I, you know, after I got back from the conference, I was doing all this research. I spent about a year and a half networking, trying to figure out where I belonged within the space. Uh, or within the huge um, industry. Um, and so I, I also got a lot of great advice about uh, credentials that would be helpful for pivoting my, my foundational knowledge from environmental microbiology into a sustainability space. 
Um, so I found it really helpful to, to, to network and to, uh, for my own, um, knowledge to really build on, um, by getting credentials. So interesting to hear you say stumbled. So really the, you know, there's a bit of planning and then there's a bit of happenstance, I think, in all of our stories. And, you know, it wasn't quite random because you took yourself to that conference where you had the opportunity to stumble into the sustainability thing, right? So... Absolutely. So there was a chance for you to be more proactive about it as well. Anton, um, how about you? Anton Sediaco, what are some turning points and how did your graduate education support the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like a lot of people here, there was a lot of stumbling involved, but um, it really started, I started my PhD in studying traditional combustion techniques and seeing how we can improve combustion engines. Uh, which was probably very poorly timed with the transition towards electric drive. But uh, then we started working with different partners, going to different conferences, and started a few projects looking at new types of battery materials. So the same science you apply to combustion can actually be applied to studying new nanomaterials for batteries. And after that, I got a job in Sweden in technical strategy consulting. And a lot of the work there, it's very traditional engineering companies. They've been doing the same diesel engine for 200, 300 years, just incremental improvements. And really that's not working anymore. So my role there was to help them transition their entire business with the proper risk management towards electrification or more efficient systems. And step-by-step step, as we worked with these battery companies, vehicle companies, uh, my experience became more and more focused on that. And that eventually led me to Germany to join in Carl Zeitz. Nice. So, you, you know, earlier you just said, Anton, I got a job. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into how you got those jobs. And don't worry, everybody. I think there are questions about, um, you know, the job search process. So we'll, we'll come on that. But I hear you. And it sounds like the PhD maybe morphed, Anton, like it didn't start. Um, but it, it changed even over the course of the time that you were doing that PhD into more of an area of an interest. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important to both career and research is not just focusing on the very small bubble that we work in and actually figuring out if what you're doing is the real problem. Because uh, improving 1% in combustion efficiency may be really interesting, but uh, there's probably a larger problem at hand that you could apply the same skills and science to that might be more relevant to solving these problems. Nice, thanks. And um, Alison Traub, over to you. you, you know, you have this interesting background with an undergrad that was in environmental science, not engineering, but then a master's degree in engineering, and you sometimes see that interesting trajectory. What, what are some turning points in your story, and how did the education play into it? Yeah, I think you'll, you'll hear a few common, common themes uh, echoed in my response. Um, there's also a lot of, of stumbling involved in some trial and error. So um, as you mentioned, my undergrad was in environmental sciences, and I focused on microbial ecology, actually, thinking that I wanted to go in and, you know, research uh, microbe communities for bioremediation of contaminated sites. Um, and fortunately for me, I was enrolled in a co-op program, so I had the opportunity to do four work terms, uh, the final of which was actually... Um, you know, working on research in uh, anaerobic bacteria that could, you know, work on contaminated sites. Um, and I hated it, uh, unfortunately. So, yeah, that was, um, that really, that was a big turning point for me. Um, and that led me to kind of reconsider where I wanted to go. And um, perhaps unlike some of the participants here, my focus was sort of always in, in the sustainability space with a background in environmental science. 
Um, but I ended up uh, doing a master's at U of T where I focused on air quality and its impacts on human health and the environment. Um, and a big focus of that research was how policy, both at the provincial and the federal and the municipal level, um, affected the air quality. And, and um, what I came to realize really is that um, much as I was looking specifically at air quality as opposed to climate change, um, you know, climate change is also a public health issue. Air quality is a public health issue. Um, it's all sort of interconnected. And uh, that's sort of where I really developed my uh, understanding that where I wanted to work was really the intersection between uh, climate change or environmental health and policy, which is what led me to um, pursue a role at the government. Nice. And, and can I just highlight that thing you said a moment ago about hating a work term? Like so often, you know, we're looking for the things that we like, but the things that we dislike, whether it's a work term or a co-op or even a course, is really a good clue and helps point us in a different direction. So if you don't like something, that's just really helpful career information for you. And I really appreciate you sharing that, Allison. And it, and it helps shift our, our career plan. So I think that was true in your story. That After hating that, did that help you shift gears? Uh, absolutely. That really provided a lot of necessary clarity. And I, I will say, much as I didn't enjoy the work, you know, I still made a lot of really valuable connections. And, and that work term was actually abroad. It was in Germany. So um, it was a really valuable experience uh, in other ways aside from the work term and, and also provided the necessary clarity to, to shift focuses before, you know, conducting an extensive uh, job search at the end of my degree. Nice. Thank you. And um, Abraham Weirasal, over to you, you know, with two master's degrees. So let's, let's hear how the twists and turns in your story and, and getting the two master's degrees and that second one at U of T where you and I had actually met on, uh, on a previous engagement. Let's hear how some of those pieces play into your story. Thanks, Mark. So my first, uh, I guess my first uh, pivot was through a rejection. So I applied for University of Waterloo First choice was chemical engineering. My second choice was environmental engineering. So my first choice got, got rejected and I had no choice but to go with environmental engineering. And I, I loved it. Like I was stumbling into environmental engineering. I loved the whole aspect of protecting the earth, you know, being a steward of the earth. So I've really taken that. And I did have a few co-op terms and I did have a few co-op terms that I hated. So I knew not to go in that direction as well. Um, but after I graduated from my engineering degree, what I realized was, you know, I could make a really great uh, product that will clean up the earth, but if I cannot sell it, then it just doesn't make an impact, right? So that's why I decided to take, okay, let me broaden my perspective a little bit and get into a little bit towards the social and sustainable business management, which is what I did in Seattle. And that's when I realized, you know, I, I walked into this living building, um, the greenest commercial building in Seattle, the Bullet Center. And I realized, you know what, this is great. Uh, this building doesn't feel like a, a non-living thing. It feels almost like it's living. So uh, that's when I started to think, okay, how can I make uh, buildings greener? That's why I decided to go with the Masters of Civil Engineering at U of T. Um, Going back a little bit as well, after I graduated from the, the Masters in Social and Sustainable Business Management, in my head I was like, okay, my dream job is to work for a top four consulting firm in the sustainable uh, sector. And I got the job. I worked at Deloitte for a year, but I hated it. So similar to Allison, uh, that's what I thought, you know, I was, in my head I was like, this is the perfect job for me. I'm, I'm so glad I got here. 
but I spend the whole year miserable because um, all I was doing is a lot of presentation, but not so much implementation. So what that hit me is that I'm more of a hands-on person. I like to be hands-on. I like to be doing things and seeing the results of my actions directly. So that's why I got the uh, volunteer position at Tanzania. And I loved it, but I could not survive with the money that I was getting. It was $600 a, a month that I was getting. So I was like, okay, where do we go from here? And that's where I stumbled upon Greensaver. And uh, it encompasses both the hands-on and office aspect. And I love the variety of it. So that's how I'm an uh, energy advisor right now. Nice story. Um, Abraham, there's a piece there. Uh, again, like you said, you hated it, the Deloitte thing. Um, and in a weird way, like career and figuring out your sweet spot is a kind of big error correction system. You know, you go too far this way and you error correct and you go a bit this way. You know, and you, you found out like, oh, I, I want to be more hands-on. I don't want to just do these presentations. You know, so there are clues, you know, and, and the clue that you also gave us when you walked into that building in Seattle and said, oh, you know, making buildings like this, this is for me. So can you just comment on that, like these kind of positive clues you gave the Seattle one and negative clues like the Deloitte thing and how, you know, you got to notice those clues to then take some kind of action afterwards. Yes, for sure. And uh, I think for me, the, the negative clues hit a lot harder than the positive clues. Um, and I definitely took a, a lot more action towards the negative clues. Like, I had a chance to renew my contract in uh, Deloitte, but I'm like, no, this is not what I want to do. So that's, and I already got looking into positions like the Tanzanian position. I was like, this is what I want to do. Digging compost, digging holes in the chicken farms in Tanzania. That was really fulfilling for me, making compost there. So <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, some pivots required during your career journey. A lot of people think, okay, I need to know what exactly I want to do after I graduate. That's not the case. It's, it's a trial and error process. Right. There's good, there's good starting points that look like they're promising. I, you know, I believe in that. We, I teach a, an engineering careers course and we talk about, you know, at least doing enough reflection that you have a, what is, appears to be a good starting point and then moving on and recognizing that you will need to do some pivots and error corrections. Mm -hmm. Good. Let me uh, remind listeners you're listening to Career Buzz. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Uh, we have with us four panelists. Uh, Abraham Wyrasal, Senior Energy Consultant with the City of Toronto, Alison Traub, Senior Policy Advisor with the Ontario Ministry of Energy, Anton Sediaco, Innovation Scout at Carl Zeiss Innovation Hub, and Nadia Morrison, Research Analyst at Corporate Knights. Um, so thanks everybody for, for talking about jobs and sustainability and career stories, uh, tackling climate change. Um, you know, we go to school or grad school, we learn a lot of technical skills, and yet we consistently hear from employers, they want those people skills, sometimes called soft skills, I don't like that term, let's call them people skills or, you know, power skills even, and, and career management being one of them. And can I get from you uh, each, just briefly, what, what's one or two of these non-technical skills um, that maybe you got from grad school uh, that you can spotlight for us that, you know, these are important skills, um, you know, beyond the technical that help me in my job or that even help me get my job. Um, Anton Sediako, can I start with you? What's a, what's a non-technical skill that you might have got from, from grad school? 
Sorry, I was muted. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there's kind of the standard ones that everyone knows, like communication, being able to work as part of a team. I mean, that's, of course, vital. But I think the one that has really helped me is understanding that I'm probably not the smartest person in the room and the uh, ability to actually learn from others on the team, especially when starting a new field or even on a new project that uh, it's really important to realize that everyone you work with has specific expertise and it's critical that you learn from them, everyone gets their voice heard and uh, really I think that's the best way to move forward in these projects and that's really vital for any successful project at a large company or a large organization because if we come in thinking that we're the most brilliant people then it really doesn't uh, doesn't go far in my experience and generally people don't really like to work with people like that so nice so quick learner learning from others you know sometimes i even think in linkedin headlines you know i don't know uh anton if your linkedin headline says learning from others but really a nice skill to highlight and to talk about even in job interviews thanks for that one nadia morrison over to you a non-technical skill or two yeah, I, I completely agree with Anton. I think that is great. Um, and, and personally for me, what I've noticed is my project management skills that I gained from grad school have been so helpful. Um, general organization, planning, um, following through with execution. I, I really didn't think that these were, uh, you know, skills that everyone didn't have, but I, I really noticed that grad school prepared me in a way differently from my colleagues in this way. Um, and I've also learned a lot in terms of these types of organizational skills from even student groups. Um, I think Allison and I overlapped on the uh, Chemical Engineering Graduate Student Association. And, you know, we learned so much from planning events and communications for newsletters and things like that. So even outside of research organization, even student group organization skills have been so helpful for me. Nice, great. So everybody listening, you know, plug into your student groups while you still have access to them on campus and, and gain all of those really important employability skills. And project management, I appreciate you highlighting that, Nadia. It was one of the skills I felt leaving engineering school way back when that I didn't really possess well enough. Career management and project management were my two missing ingredients that I had to learn on my own. Um, Abraham Wyrus, all over to you. What, what, what are some non-technical skills that you find helpful? For me, Mark, it's uh, building and maintaining relationships um, throughout your whole career journey or even throughout graduate school. It's maintaining relationships and building those new relationships, willing to invest your time not only to your assignments, not only to your projects, but also to making friends or making uh, connections with other people in, in your surrounding area. That really helped me with my, with my career. Um, for example, Actually, I'm only three months into my City of Toronto job, so I'm very uh, recent, uh, recently hired there. And just coming into the uh, workplace, my manager already told me, Abraham, you know what? I told people that we're hiring you, and they were like, congratulations, Abraham's great. So I'm, I'm already known within the industry um, as, a, as an energy advisor. So just building and maintaining those relationships throughout your whole career is very important. Great, great skill and a good lesson. Um, and Alison Traub, over, over to you, what's a non-technical skill you found helpful? Yeah, I think I'll start by, you know, just saying I agree with the other ones that were raised, and those are all very important. And um, I think uh, kind of building a little bit off what Anton said, like, I think graduate school can, can teach you to be a little bit humble, and it can also to teach, you, teach you to sort of step into being confident in yourself, and that's definitely something I took away um, from graduate school. 
kind of being confident in my abilities and also um, being really adaptable. So especially in research, like things go wrong. You have this really promising path and you go down it and it, it doesn't work. None of your experiments work and you have to pivot and think what you're going to do next. And that's really applicable to my job doing climate change research uh, at the ministry. And um, also with respect to communication, uh, I'll highlight specifically the ability to communicate to and know your audience. So communicating to a variety of different audiences and really um, you know, putting yourself in their shoes and contextualizing the information you're sharing in a way that will make them understand and will make them care. Because if you just deliver information the same way every time, you'll, you'll lose big chunks of your audience. And, and with an issue like climate change, it's just critically important to, to get folks on board and make sure they understand it's relevant to them. Nice. Great, great bunch of skills. Like, I'd encourage everybody, you know, as you hear these skills, to c consider including them in your, in your repertoire, you know, even finding a place on your resume or a job interview for skills like we've just heard, building relationships or communicating and tailoring your communication to your audience, project management, quick learning. Like, these are all things that employers actually do want. They say they want them, and, and it's beneficial, I think, to highlight in your in your career tools. So everybody, let's move uh, on to job search and the ways that you have successfully found either this most recent job or one of the jobs in the past. I know many of our listeners will be engaging in a job search experience and they're going to want to think about what are some of the best strategies and tips and how to position yourself for employers. Um, did you, say, apply traditionally to a job posting and get an interview, or did you network, or was there an employee referral program? Um, what did you feel was useful for you to highlight technical, non-technical skills that might have been helpful in your job search? Um, and, and you could take kind of any job, but maybe the more recent one was uh, a place to start. Alison Traub, how would I start with you? What, how did you get that job, and what was helpful? Sure. So I um, kind of, it's, it's a bit of a two-part journey here. So the first part of getting this job, uh, I actually got through a traditional application um, approach. So uh, the Ontario government was having um, like a graduate, it was a graduate development program. So for recent graduates, you could apply and um, get a job within the government as a policy assistant. Uh, so I came through that way and uh, started off at the Ministry of Environment. Um, and then once I was at the Ministry of Environment, really the way that I got this next role um, as a senior policy advisor was through networking. So during my time as an assistant, I made sure to set up coffee chats with folks from all across government to understand better um, what their groups were doing and to kind of um, just tell my story about, about where I was coming from. Um, and that's, I ended up having coffee with my current manager and uh, they had a vacancy, so I was able to, to shift over to this team and, and shift my focus a little bit. Um, and in terms of what I emphasized, I think uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how I didn't do an undergraduate um, in engineering, uh, but I did a master's in engineering. And that was something that I kind of felt almost like embarrassed by or self-conscious that I didn't have an undergraduate degree in engineering. Um, but what I highlighted in the end was realizing that was a bit of a strength. And I came from, you know, a, a, like a diverse educational background with a lot of hands-on experience, and that's really what I highlighted um, in my in my coffee chat with my current manager. Thanks for that. That's um, that's great. Like some of the students I speak to, usually a master's of, of engineering or master's of applied science, and from time to time they don't have that undergrad in engineering, and they, they do have that same kind of worry 
about presenting themselves without that credential to employers. And I really appreciate, Allison, how you were talking about making that a strength. It gives you a broader perspective or a different, uh, fresh eyes on, on maybe different problems. And, and that coffee chat, that's a common term that a lot of people know about, but some people don't. Can you just say, like, when, when you say coffee chat, can you just say a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. So, I mean, I think a little bit of a unique circumstance, this was, you know, peak pandemic. So, so my coffee chat was uh, actually just a Teams call with, uh, with my manager, and um, I had a coffee. I think he also had a coffee. Um, and it was just sort of an informal chat. Like, I wasn't, I didn't call him looking for a job. I, I you know, set it up because I was interested in learning more about what his team did um, and sort of the Ministry of Energy in general. Um, and from there, it sort of evolved into, you know, once once we got to know each other, there was, you know, he thought of me when there was an opening, that kind of thing. So really, these coffee chats are sort of just informal chats, whether they're in person or not in person, whether they involve coffee or not, um, to gain a broader understanding of, of, you know, what someone else does and, and to just broaden your network and make those connections. Nice. And for the job that eventually came up, was that even posted, that job internally, or was that a job that was only in the mind of that person who you were having a coffee chat with? Absolutely. I was only only in the mind of that person. I think that's something folks need to keep in mind is that just because a job's not posted doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Because posting a job is actually a lot of work. Um, and so sometimes people haven't got around to it. And if the right person just stumbles in, then, you know, that might be who they end up hiring. All right, everybody, you heard that here. I think that's a really important insight and useful that these coffee chats, I tend to call that field research, but Whatever it is, you know, there isn't necessarily a job focus to the conversation, um, but wanting to learn more, Allison, as you were saying, and, and that can really build relationships and open up opportunities, some of which are not even posted. So thanks for that story. Anton Sediaco, over to you. A little bit about your job search, either at the Carl Zeiss Center or, or wherever. What was helpful for you to get, uh, get those jobs? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So I graduated with my PhD and I kind of, I knew I wanted to start working internationally, get a bit of experience in different countries and um, different perspectives there. So during my PhD, I did an internship at Volvo Penta in Gothenburg, Sweden. And I really liked the country. I loved the team dynamic, the work environment. Uh, so when I graduated, I just kind of cold reached out to a few consulting companies there. And I think I got quite lucky. It was uh, maybe the right area I worked in at the right time. So I was able to find a job fairly quickly there and start consulting on technical strategy. And that was really great because you work with so many different companies um, directly as part of their team. So you really learn quickly what you like at different companies and really importantly, what you don't like. Um, I always make the joke that job hunting is kind of like dating. Um, you're always looking for those red flags because you're also interviewing the company that you're uh, applying for. So after I did consulting for about three years there, I had quite a big, good list of red flags to look out for in any job that I was interviewing for. So when it came time to move to Germany, um, I did quite a few interviews in the area there, uh, but also my wife had some connections there, so I was able to network uh, through there. And uh, very similar, I found a, a posting for a very technical position but I also really like the company, like Carl Zeiss is very research focused. Um, from what I've seen so far, very ethically focused as well. So I went to this interview and I really described, I didn't try and like force myself into that position role. Uh, so instead I described the exact type of work that I like to do. And uh, it actually worked out really well. The, the boss there said essentially, 
Well, I mean, we you can take this position, but we think there's a much more interesting position as Innovation Scout that's a much better fit um, if you would like to pursue that. And again, that wasn't posted. It was just kind of, I described really what I was looking for in a position, what my expertise were, and it kind of came up naturally. Um, so yeah, that was uh, the very quick elevator pitch on the yeah. career path. That's, that's great. Like, so that does sometimes happen, right? We have a, a job that we think we're interviewing for, and the interviewer has other ideas for us and, and makes a pitch for another role. That does happen. But also a quick note on that. Uh, to be fair, I've also done that in different jobs I've interviewed for, and it just wasn't a fit. Um, I realized that it seemed interesting on the application, but um, as we were talking, I realized that it's a very specific technical role that really wasn't the direction I wanted to take my career. And it's a very privileged outlook that I can turn those positions down, of course, that I had a comfortable job at the time I was looking. Uh, but it is, it's not guaranteed as well that uh, they will have this dream job. Gotcha. And, and just, to, uh, you know, some of our audience listening will be looking for jobs in other countries. Maybe we have a very diverse group of students at U of T and across Toronto. And sometimes people are job searching for in their home country while they're, say, in Canada or looking elsewhere. You got a job in Sweden and then a job in Germany. Um, could you just comment on what that's like to be doing an international job search, especially if you're looking for a job that isn't in the country that you're currently in? Yeah, the um, I guess I've been quite lucky. The job search itself has been fairly um, not too challenging in regards to logistics and networking. I think as all of us work in the in the professional world, we realize that it's actually a really small world. Um, I think my boss, uh, my Swedish boss has worked in the area that I now live in in Germany. Like everyone's kind of working fairly closely together, especially in the field of sustainability. Uh, the really challenging thing comes up in the least expected parts, all of the logistics. And I like to think I was really good at logistics, but then you start to deal with work permits, with visas, with um, moving your entire life in four suitcases and two cats. Um, and suddenly it becomes an enormous project. The job becomes the very easy part of life rather than the actual logistics. So I would say just make sure when you're doing this process, uh, do the research beforehand. For example, for Sweden, amazing place to work, a great country, but the, the time to get a work permit and the process involved is incredibly complex. Uh, so you really have to be prepared for that and plan well in advance because it can take up to six months to get a work permit specifically for Sweden. Actually, I think it's up to a year now, but not to scare anyone off. Uh, versus Germany, I think it took us five days because there was a snowstorm, so the uh, the application got delayed in the, in the snow, but they issued it the same day, so that was much easier. Gotcha, thanks for that. And um, Nadia Morrison at uh, Corporate Nights, how about your job search story? What did you find helpful? Yeah, so towards the end of my PhD, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to be in, in the sustainability field and what kind of work I would find gratifying from day to day. And I, I recognized that in the last six months or so of my PhD, the part that I loved the most was my data analytics and data science skills that I was using. And so I was really keen to highlight those skills and look for jobs that I could utilize those skills. So I was looking for a lot of data analyst jobs, uh, research analyst jobs, things like that. And when I stumbled upon the Corporate Knights job, they actually also had a um, like a technical assessment that was required in addition to the um, you know resume and, and cover letter. Um, and what I recognized when I was doing that assessment was that a lot of the 
knowledge I had gained from my credential for the SASB uh, Fundamentals of Sustainability Accounting credential really helped me kind of understand um, the, the task at hand and looking at uh, technical um, sustainability data from the corporate world. So I found a way to highlight both my credentials and my the part of my PhD that I really loved, my data science skills, um, and really highlighted that during my um, application and as well in my interviews. Um, and it seemed to go well. So. <laughs> and you, you have this unique combination of the, the formal credential, the PhD, with these three certifications. Could you speak to the value of those certifications, not only for your own learning, but how they were perceived by prospective employers? Absolutely. I think because my education wasn't in the space that I was applying for jobs, I really felt like I owed it to the people that I was uh, pitching myself to, that I could prove that I had um, a lot of the, the background knowledge. Um, but I think, you know, it shows in, in a similar way, what a PhD shows in that I, if I devote myself to a topic, I can exceed at it um, and excel at it, sorry. So I think, you know, more than just the, the knowledge that I learned, it was more showing that I could apply myself to a topic and, and, uh, and deliver. <laughs> nice. So I think that's a good tip, you know, for everybody finding some of those certifications that are relevant in your field to complement that graduate degree or whatever else you're doing in the formal education space. Thanks, uh, Nadia. And Abraham Weirsall, over to you. You've had a few jobs, um, including some that you didn't like and some that you liked a lot. What, what was helpful in your job search? Yes, yeah, so for me, Mark, uh, most helpful in my job search is what Allison was talking about, the informational interviews, the coffee chats. The, as I mentioned previously, building relationships is key to getting a job in my perspective, in my experience. So even starting from the Deloitte job, uh, I joined into an informational session that they had um, for the team and then asked questions during that time, as well as I was in Seattle at the time, so it was a virtual thing. But once I came back to Canada, I actually chatted up the two panelists there and then uh, say, hey, can we meet for a coffee chat? And then we met and eventually I applied for a job and got the position uh, through there. So that's really important. Um, the second, even for my city of Toronto job right now, it's also true sort of an informational interview. I met with my manager previously and she was actually the one who forwarded me the um, posting for the job. It was like, Abraham, you know, this looks like something that people in your network will be interested in. Uh, would you like to share it? Do you mind if you share it with your network? I'm like, yeah, sure. Can I also apply? Honestly, at the time, I wasn't really look, actively looking for a job, so that came, uh, and then I applied. A few months later, got an interview. Uh, what I highlighted during my interview is just my uh, technical skill, my experience doing energy audits, like hands-on energy audits uh, in people's homes, and that's something that the city of Toronto was lacking at the time, so that really hit a nail uh, to them, and that's exactly what they were looking for, so that's how I was able to secure the job. Nice. That's it. That's an interesting story. How the posting was forwarded by this contact of yours, and the comment was, "Hey, do you know anybody in your network?" And I think this is sort of a little bit of a thing that happens. That nobody wants to be seen stealing employees from another company. So instead of saying, "Hey, I really want you. Please apply," they say, "Hey, here's a posting. Maybe you know somebody. 
you know, and, and, and that's what happened, right? So I think, is that true? She was trying to signal to you to apply, even though she didn't quite come out and say it that way. That's that's right. I asked, uh, "Can I apply?" She's like, "Yeah, <laughs> you're actually one of the persons that, that fits the bill." So, yeah, nice. That's, so it really does help, you know, to have these coffee chats, field research meetings, because you don't know where these people are going to show up again in your career and life. In this in this example. Mm-hmm. Thanks, everybody, for those job search stories. You're listening to Career Buzz. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Uh, Today we're speaking to four panelists, career stories uh, about tackling climate change and sustainability. Abraham Wyrasal is Senior Energy Consultant at City of Toronto. Alison Traub is Senior Policy Advisor at Ontario Ministry of Energy. Anton Sediaco is Innovation Scout at Carl Zeiss Innovation Hub in Germany. And Nadia Morrison is Research Analyst at Corporate Knights. Um, so thanks everybody for these uh, interesting job search stories. Um, you know, so many people are interested in jobs in sustainability or net zero or climate change or environmental work. Um, as I speak to early career individuals, I hear more and more people wanting to make a difference and solve some of the big problems that we see everywhere we turn. Um, what what are some trends that you're noticing? You know, beyond even your maybe with your own employer, some of you work for big employers like the city or the government of Ontario. What are you noticing? Um, trends, hiring trends um, for for jobs in this space. And if there was some advice, where could people look, or what what should they think about um, as they consider their next steps, especially with an interest in our topic today. Um, so, um, Alison Traub, if I can start with you, what, what are some trends you're noticing? I think like one trend that I'm certainly noticing is, is just that generally the awareness, both in, in the public and private sectors, of the importance of climate change is, is really growing, um, in part because we are just seeing some of these you know, extreme weather events, um, like the, the windstorm and the storm in Ottawa that knocked out power for, for weeks. Um, that sort of thing really drives interest, and we're also seeing like a shifting consumer and customer base as, you know, kind of younger people are the main customers for a lot of private companies and and they really care about a lot of sustainability and corporate social responsibility factors. Um, Yeah, in terms of in terms of hiring, I think, and in terms of getting jobs in this space, like more and more we're seeing there's a lot of options for credentials and courses that you can take. so I think that's a really good opportunity and also just because there's more jobs in the space, there's more people that you can sit down and chat with and, and talk to them about, you know, um, what what sort of skills help them in, in their role just because there's such a wide diversity of, of those roles. Nice. Thank you. Um, Anton, you you know, you, you've got jobs in Sweden and Germany, and but you've got a perspective in Canada. What are you seeing both Canada and, and internationally with uh, jobs in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I guess I've been quite lucky that the countries I've uh, worked and lived in have always, at least, or more recently, have developed a very heavy focus on sustainability, and that's really amazing to see. Um, On the flip side, maybe a negative trend uh, when working consulting is, uh, to me, when I was in the consulting, circular economy was almost like a dirty word because it was uh, so many companies don't actually do anything real or impactful in it. It's more the, the slogan or the the headline on the website. Uh, so when I had the chance to move or move to a company that had the resources, had the technology, and also had the focus to actually apply that technology to, to solving this problem, that was really exciting. Uh, so I think it's important to 
identify the companies that actually are trying to make a difference and see in the position that you're applying to, will you have a chance to actually work on these real solutions? Um, because from personal experience, it gets very frustrating when it's, uh, when it's not a real solution that you're working towards. It's more kind of greenwashing side effect. But um, yeah, I think the, the trend is generally really positive and it's really exciting to see that essentially every company, at least in the high tech sector, is almost being forced to transition to sustainability with all the materials shortages, uh, which is of course negative, but it's also a really exciting field to be in when uh, you have to come up with these solutions very quickly and uh, develop new processes, new methods, and communicate that as well. Great, great advice. You know, even even as we're speaking, I just um, did a search on Indeed, a popular job search site off the word sustainability. I did find 1,100 jobs. You know, it's hard to say which ones are the greenwashing jobs and which ones are legitimate work, but we're seeing it not only at, like I see a job at the City of Toronto, but I also see things in technology and consulting and even financial services, like at the banks, right? So we're starting to see these roles, a sustainability role, even at the big banks. So really interesting to see that development. Um, and Nadia, Nadia Morrison, what, what are you seeing? And maybe from that perspective that you have, because you're looking across lots of different companies with corporate nights, what, what are the, some of the trends in this job space? Yeah, definitely some really great points touched on already um, that I, I definitely see when I'm looking at sustainability reports, a lot of greenwashing as well. Um, but I, we're also noticing as been mentioned, there are so many jobs in this space, new jobs that have never existed before, jobs you know that might come to fruition next year that have, don't exist now. And you know, a lot of the, the, the messaging that I got when I was networking is that a lot of the people even hiring don't have educations in the field of sustainability because even that is kind of newer. So even if you don't feel like you have the experience, I mean, I, I can relate to this, if you don't feel like you have the, the educational background, for the field of sustainability, that shouldn't really inhibit you or prohibit you from applying for jobs because, um, you know, you can apply your skills that you've gained from grad school absolutely to almost any role. And, um, and you know, there's, like Allison said, there's tons of credentials. There's so much we can do. Um, and I really think that this is, you know, we need all the brilliant minds on this to make it work and to succeed in the short timeline that we have left. So don't be discouraged. Just apply for any job that you think would be a good fit for you. Good, good uh, advice. You know, there's a, there's an article that I have my students read. The, the headline is something like, why you should apply for jobs that you're not qualified for. And, you know, and just the headline is a shocker for people because we get, I don't know, brainwashed into thinking that if they have a laundry list of 10 things that we have to have all 10 on the posting. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you only have two, it's probably not worth it up to apply. But if you have six or seven and a bunch of other great stuff, it's probably worth it, right? Especially in this new space where, like you say, Nadia, not everybody, not anybody has relevant education in that space. And Abraham uh, Wyrusall, over, over to you. You've had a few really interesting jobs in this space. What are you noticing um, in terms of trends? Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess for me, the the race to net zero. I think that's the biggest trend right now. Like every, every almost every country, every city now is looking at having a net zero plan to twenty fifty. Most of them, but city of Toronto themselves have wanted to expedite that to twenty forty. So it's definitely something that everybody's thinking about. Well, everybody within the city is thinking about how can we achieve that. 
and as well in the energy advisor industry, the trend there is a little bit more of a up and down depending on um, rebates and incentives that the government provides. So it's a little bit more shaky, um, not as not as stable as um, other people or more people would like. But there's also the trend of uh, governments providing more rebates, more incentives to homeowners looking to do uh, deep retrofit in their house, looking to electrify their home, looking to get their greenhouse gas emissions down. And the one trend that I've noticed uh, within the past five years of me being an energy advisor is that it used to be, you know, Homeowners, they just want to get the rebate. Uh, they're just applying for the energy audit to get the rebate. Um, but now it's more like, hey, you know what? I don't really want, uh, I want the rebate, yes, but I really want to know how to get to net zero. I really want to know how to um, get uh, all the way down to as efficient as I can and helping the planet. So that's really refreshing for myself, especially working in the city of Toronto. Nice. Thanks for that. Let's just see. I'm not sure if any of you have been hiring, um, and and you know what you're noticing in t inside your own organization about hiring. Whether you're the hiring manager or you've been on a hiring committee or a team, and you know if you're looking at resumes or you're listening to to interviewees share with you, and they're wanting to get a job. What are, what are you noticing? Um, what do you like to hear and and not like to hear? in an interview that makes you like a candidate. So I'm not sure who, who has done some hiring out of the four of you, and we'll, we'll see just where that question goes. Yeah, Abraham to, for you, and then Anton over to you. Sure, so I've hired four previous uh, employers, and what I really like to see is someone with an understanding of, okay, this is where my passion lies, I'm not sure how to get there yet, but this is what I really wanna learn. Um, what I don't like when I talk to people whom I'm trying to hire is they say, you know what, I just, I'm just looking for any experience. And I'm like, okay, maybe this experience is good for you, but I really like to, because in my opinion, somebody with that passion with that drive will, um, especially in the virtual world where we don't really see each other in person in the office, they'll have that self-drive to learn themselves, uh, to learn for themselves what the company is doing, have other different ideas rather than somebody who's just looking for a job. Uh, that's that's my opinion. So, so especially helps. people to kind of demonstrate their excitement, their enthusiasm, and that they've done some homework on that job. So this isn't a, an interview for just any job. It's for this one at this company, and I know these things about the job from the posting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Thanks for that. It, it's surprising how many people think that just because they applied, they've already demonstrated interest and enthusiasm, and then they don't come across as being as interested in person as they did in their cover letter or their application. And I, I think you're saying the message is to kind of reiterate, restate that interest, especially in the interview. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and Anton Sediaco, you, you too, what have you noticed? What works well for you in the hiring process? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the biggest one for me is, especially the, the fields we're working in, um, engineering, sustainability, science, for me, it's critical that, uh, I mean, I assume that everyone that comes in is experienced and has a fairly high level of technical expertise based on their resume, but uh, the really critical one is the ability to own up to mistakes and so that I can really trust the person at the end of the day with the work that they deliver. Um, because 
mistakes happen in everyday work, and uh, it's critical that people are, aren't afraid to bring it forward, and we can kind of correct these things together. Uh, but if people tend to hide that, then it becomes a much bigger problem. So we've had that experience. And, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps another one that might be more specific to the type of roles that, or areas that I work in, is most of the time the problems that we face are fairly ill-defined, especially when you're looking at 5, 10, 20 years down the line with these global issues. And it's a very challenging uh, place to be where you don't really have a fixed problem. You have to figure out what the problem is and then figure out a solution. And usually that's, oftentimes that's not a great fit for many people. They like to have a specific problem. And that's, and they're great at that uh, when they have that specific problem. So oftentimes it's just not really a good fit and it's uh, when it's such a vague issue. So it's important that we we're kind of on the same page with what type of work, um, uh, what the position entails and what's expected of, of everyone there. Nice, great, great advice. So everybody, we have a, a live audience in this special edition of Career Buzz eager to, uh, to ask questions. So let me close with one final question and then uh, we'll open it up to our, our audience for their questions. Um, and if I could, we've, we've learned a little bit about each one of your stories and some of the twists and turns that brought you to this moment in your career. It, what's one thing that you've learned from your own story and experience about making good choices, good career and life choices that you can share with listeners? Maybe one piece of advice come from your own story. And if I could start, um, uh, Nadia, with you and then, and then Allison over to you. So, Nadia, what's one thing you've learned? I've really learned to pause and recognize what I enjoy doing and follow that. So follow my passion and follow my intuition. And so far that has not led me astray. So I definitely recommend doing that. Nice. Great advice. Alison Traub, over to you. One thing you've learned from your story. I think one, learn, one thing I've learned from, from my kind of career journey here is that like you, you have to do what's right for you. And, you know, I think we get into this position a lot of the time where you feel a sense of loyalty to your company or your boss or your organization. And that can at times like lead you to make decisions that maybe aren't the best for you or, or make you scared to, you know, ask for more money or some kind of accommodation that would make your, your work-life balance better. And ultimately, like, this is, you have to do what's right for you and, and you owe yourself before you owe anyone else. Great, great advice. It's your career. You know, you got to take charge of it. You're responsible for making those choices. Thanks, Allison. And, and Anton Sediaco, over to you. What's one lesson you can share with listeners? Uh, one lesson, especially on the job hunt stage, I would say uh, don't ignore the red flags at interviews. It's very much if, if at that stage the employer uh, is already showing some concerning uh, things during the interview, then it's probably not going to get better uh, once you're actually in the position. It's only usually going to get worse. So I'd say um, if you have the opportunity or the privilege to be more selective, then it's really great to not ignore the, the concerning side effects. Um, and also don't be afraid to take risks, to switch positions, to move to a different country. It is a lot of work. It is terrifying. And uh, these flights really suck uh, when you have four suitcases in your whole family. Uh, but it's really rewarding when you actually find the right path for you. Great. Great advice, Anton. And, and Abraham Weirasal, over to you for one uh, piece of advice from your story. My one piece of advice is to don't be afraid to discuss your options with your people closest to you, friends, family members, because sometimes 
we have blind spots that we are not aware of. Uh, you might overthink or you might uh, romanticize a career or job that they'll say, hey, hey slow down a minute. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's one advice. Just discuss with your friends and families. Right. Don't keep it all in, in here. Share it. See what kind of input, feedback that you can get from people who care about you. Great. Thanks, um, thanks everybody, for sharing your perspectives. I want to open it up to uh, questions to our listening audience. If, uh, audience, you have questions, put your hand up or put that into the chat in our special version today of Career Buzz. <laughs> I'm your host, Mark Franklin. We have with us four panelists, Abraham Wyrasal, Senior Energy Consultant at City of Toronto, Alison Traub, Senior Policy Advisor at Ontario Ministry of Energy, Anton Sediaco, Innovation Scout at Carl Zeiss Innovation Hub, and Nadia Morrison, Research Analyst at Corporate Knights. So let's see, who's got a couple of questions? Um, let's start, uh, let's see, Wei Wu Chen, do you want to um, either ask, unmute and ask your question? Yes. So, hey, everyone. Uh, it was really nice talk, and I, I really learned a lot. I appreciate that. And just quick introduce by myself. Um, currently, I'm doing my Master of Engineering on Civil Department, which uh, emphasizes in environmental and uh, advanced water technology. So, I was really interested in the sustainability. So, further on that, my question is actually for uh, Abraham, because you are talking about the passion. And then, I just kind of curious that for the passion like define because like, let's say you're the manager and then when the resume or the cover letter come how do you see the candidate have the passion for this work i know it, doing the interview you can show in the passion but like for you know the paperwork only two pages but like resume or like one pages of cover letter how like how can we show the passion out? That's just my question. Great question, uh, Wei Wu Chen. So, so how do you demonstrate passion or really a strong interest and enthusiasm for a job or a position, both either in the resume and application or maybe in the interview? Um, I know, um, Abraham, you said you were doing some hiring. Maybe I can start yeah. with you and, and one more can answer as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so for me, um, in the paper, what I usually look for is volunteering. Or even, um, for example, um, your master's degree spe spe specifically in building or civil engineering with something specialization. Those are the things that I look for, that you're really looking into, delving deep into something. You're willing to invest your time into what you're passionate for. That's what I really look for. When I look for passion in a piece of paper, yeah, I know it's difficult. And a lot of times it does come more in during the interview itself, because then I can see your official expression, how your tone changed when you're talking about something that you love, but yeah, in paper, volunteering experience usually. Great, great so, advice. Thank you. And, and just, let's see if there's one other quick response from our panelists there. Um, maybe I can mention one thing. Sorry. <laughs> he's, we've been gone for a week, so he's very needy. Um, so it's a huge amount of work, but I think it's really important to do your proper research before applying and include the relevant material in the cover letter. It seems very obvious, but when you're doing 100 applications and you're, it gets very tedious and very exhausting, but it really shows through when you're looking at these that the person hasn't really looked up what the position entails and hasn't included relevant experience. Um, so I'd say for each application, take your time, dig into the company, into the manager, into the position and include what they would find interesting and what's relevant from your background. Great advice. Thanks, uh, Anton Sediaco. Thank 
Uh, we're going to have uh, a couple of more questions here. We've got Ken Wu and then Rohit Pal. So, Ken Wu, and can you keep it kind of brief and direct your question if there is to uh, one of our panelists? Uh, yes. Uh, so my question would be, I heard something like uh, employers want to see when we apply for a job. And one of them is own up to your mistakes. And I think that's, uh, that's kind of difficult for me to like, come up with in interviews. I don't know like, what's, your, like, what's the downside of like, hiring you. I don't know like, what, what examples can I uh, give. Like, can you give some sample? Great. So if I, if I just try and restate that question, uh, Kanmu, thanks for that. Uh, there was a comment to Anton uh, Sediako, I think it came from you. Um, what do you like to see in an interview? And you said, own up to your mistakes. Or sometimes people hear a question in an interview that focuses on their challenges or their weaknesses. Um, and, and so how do, you, how do you respond to that, especially if you, you know, you're not too sure where to find that opportunity to own up to your mistakes. Anton? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the worst things you can do is give like one of those generic responses that's like, I work too hard because that's, that's not really anything. Um, I think it's really important. I mean, we've all failed on projects. We've had uh, team conflicts. I refuse to believe that uh, no one's had, uh, had these issues or some misunderstanding that became a really big problem. And I think the best way to do that in an interview is essentially explain what happened, but uh, really importantly, what you learned and how you address that challenge next time it came up. Um, so for example, we've had issues where we've had some team dynamic that didn't match up and we didn't realize that the team member was struggling and it kind of blew up at the end, but we spoke through it. And next time um, I really learned to uh, talk it through much earlier with the team and try to understand from their perspective, like really give the full learning experience. So it shows that if things happen, you're capable of resolving them and the next time you kind of grow as a person. Yeah, great, great advice, Anton. And, you know, for those who are considering in tough interview questions, you know, what is a weakness or what is a failure is a tough question. And I think, Anton, you've got it, right? Whatever you say, say something real but don't leave it there. Say what you learned or you know, how you're going to improve next time so the employer sees that you're somebody who learns from their mistakes rather than just you know, having made a mistake and leaving it on the table. So I think that's great advice. Um, uh, Rohit Pal next, uh, and then Rashmi, you've got a question. Uh, see if you can keep it brief and direct it to one of our panelists. Um, thank you, Mark, for being the host and all the panelists. That was a wonderful talk, and I really enjoyed it. Um, my question is more uh, directed towards Nadia and Alison. Uh, since I'm a PhD in chemical engineering myself, entering into my third year, there is a lot of experiments and stuff that we do in the lab, which in the grand scheme of things is never going to materialize as a business project. Um, but when we look into some of the job applications, especially in the engineering field, uh, most of the applications ask you for at least three to five years of work experience. How do you bridge that gap and convince your recruiters that hey, what I did in the lab can actually match up the work skills that you're looking for. Great question, uh, Rohit. And so you, you suggested Nadia and Allison. Um, Nadia, do you want to start with that? If You know, we do get experience in grad school or in a PhD, you know, and it is experience. It may not be exactly industry experience. Sometimes it is because you've, you've got an industry partner. Um, but how do we deal with that when we know we have the skills and experience 
but we just don't um, have the number of years experience that the employer put on their application. Nadia Morrison? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And I think I really struggled with this as well when I was job hunting because I, you know, I went from undergrad directly through grad school to my PhD to the end. So I had no actual like work experience going into job hunting. And I found that really challenging and, and conflicting with my confidence. But what I learned from, you know, speaking to a lot of people is that your graduate studies is actually a job. But you do have five years of experience or four years of experience from doing your PhD. For all the, you know, um, soft skills or personal skills that we We've talked about before, right? Project management, communication, um, conflict resolution, um, all of these things. I think a lot of people who don't aren't in the academic space or don't really communicate with a lot of PhDs, they don't really know what our day-to-day life is like. So it's really up to you to kind of tell your story and show how all of the skills you've learned from your PhD are actually transferable to any field, right? Because most of us um, unless we stated it in a technical um, industry position, most of us can't apply our PhD work to our jobs today. So we've all been able to show and demonstrate that we have these transferable skills and that we have experience from our PhD. Great, great advice. And I think it's true that you can claim some of that experience from grad school um, and, and put that as part of your experience profile different than, say, somebody from an undergrad. Um, I, Alison Traub, do you have any comments on that as well from your perspective? Yeah, I think I would. I would echo all of that. And then I would also emphasize that, you know, a lot of the time, um, the phrasing in the job application will be whatever, five years experience with, you know, something specific. But if you can take that and analyze like what skills you would need to excel in that, then you can sort of structure your resume in a way that highlights, you know, I have five years of experience with this relevant skill. So like, Maybe, you know, did I work in, in net zero consulting? No, but I did, you know, five years of research and analysis and project management, um, that sort of thing. Um, and often I think, you know, you can kind of, yeah, you can always structure the resume in a way to get your foot in the door by sort of, um, you know, using words like extensive experience or, or dividing it by the skills to get around that a little bit. And then once you're in the interview, you can really... Um, get the opportunity to to impress people with your experience. And also I would say with that, like if you can get in contact with a hiring manager or someone at the company, have a coffee chat. Let them get to know you and then someone in the company or the hiring manager themselves can say like, hey, you know, let's pull this person's resume out of the pile because even if it gets screened out, like we really want to talk to this person. Nice advice, right? So back to the non-traditional means of job search. Instead of just applying for jobs and throwing your resume over the wall and and praying, right? There are these other means, and the coffee chat turns out to be a really effective uh, tool. Thanks for that. Let's keep moving. We've just got a couple more minutes for, for maybe um, two more questions. Let's go over to you, uh, Rashmi Nagaraja. What's your question, and who's it for? Hi, hi, guys. Thank you. Um, thank you for the wonderful presentation. So my question will be more for Abraham. Um, so I come from a chemical engineering background. My undergrad and master's is in chemical engineering, and it's more of core chemical engineering. But right now in my master's, I'm focusing on sustainability, and I'm trying to move my career more into sustainability consulting, which I see is more like what, what you do. So my question is, um, since I have no experience prior in sustainability consulting, what would employers expect 
from a person who is from an engineering background with no prior experience in consulting and how can I make myself stand out in such cases? Great question, Rashmi. Um, uh, Ibrahim Wairasal, what, what sort of ideas do you have for Rashmi? Yeah, so one thing I can tell you is uh, environmental uh, consulting firms, they like to hire engineers because of how uh, engineers are able to analyze data in a very logical manner and present it in a logical manner. So that's definitely one of the skills that you can um, showcase. But the other side of it is the sustainability side of things, right? Like, And that's when I mentioned things like volunteering for something specific in the sustainability field, um, even for just, you know, I don't know, something easy like picking up trash in the in the park. That's that's something that showcase like, hey, you know what? This person is really into sustainability plus she has all this great background as an engineer of data analysis. Um, and that's I think gives you that nice package. So it's not just about uh, your education, it's not in sustainability, but you can like I think we've mentioned a few times here, you can position yourself using some of your soft skills that you've already uh, achieved or uh, gained throughout your engineering degree. Nice, thank you, Abraham. We maybe, just have time for one more one more question. Maybe I could just add one quick yeah, thing. Okay, there. Anton, um, go ahead. Um, I'll I'll be super quick. Um, I think a slightly different perspective from European universities, where PhD researchers aren't students; they're actually employees. Um, I think it's really important uh, if you are in grad school you are working a professional job. Uh, you do have experience in this. So uh, don't negotiate against yourself in the interview by saying you don't have experience in these fields. You're a highly qualified person that has done very relevant work. Um, and it's, I mean, we, we all come from the same background where we feel that, oh, we're students and you know we don't have the qualifications for this job. It's really important to have that confidence as well that yes, I, I have been doing this. I am the expert in the field, even though not the smartest person in the room, uh, but uh, don't discard your own experience as well. Right on. So let's have, uh, you know, the best of our story and no apologies for what we don't have. Let's exactly. the reframe, keep on saying, well, here's what I do have, not sorry, I don't have that. Excellent. Uh, we've got time for one more quick question. Um, Stephen Dio, over to you. Hi, I'm Stephen Dio, and I'm also in a chemical engineering background, but I have the actual two experience with uh, a fuel cell engineer in my country, but I would like to apply for the local job here. But sometimes they require me that I don't have the lo local experience, so they cannot hire me. As you are both uh, panels, uh, you have a co-op experience when you are undergraduate. So it's, that is really important that you have to have the local experience for the working in here and to get it uh, being seen uh, from your resume. And also, is any uh, suggestions for us as a master or PhD student to get an internship uh, related to the sustainable energy? Nice. Thanks, uh, Stephen. So, you know, it's that classic problem of not having Canadian experience, and we hear that a lot. So many people in Toronto and Canada come with their international education and experience, and yet they don't have that Canadian thing on their resume. And, and what can we do about that? And and you know, is there a possibility of like the word internship? Is that helpful in getting uh, your foot in the door to get that Canadian experience? Um, so, who who'd like to start us off in response to that? I I can start. Yeah, thanks, Abraham. 
so I am an international student myself. Uh, I came in as an international student, and I think the first step is definitely the uh, the education is very important. Like yeah, employers do look as your education, Canadian education, as Canadian experience. So that's one good step that you have, Stephen. Um, and then after that, you know, it's all about reframing, like what Mark was saying. You're re reframing yourself, right? Like when employers ask you. It's okay to highlight the, the skills that you've learned in your international work experience and bringing that, say, hey, you know what, I've seen this happen and I, I think this is what I can bring to the table in your company using my experience previously. So those are the things that you want to highlight rather than just saying, oh, it's not a Canadian experience, so I'm not going to even talk about it at all. So, yeah, that's, that's just it. Great. Great. A, small, yeah. a small addition to that as well that... Um, from my experience, uh, a lot of people are often skeptical of experience they can't validate. Um, and it's hard to overcome that. Um, the best way I found is essentially just continue networking, continue going to any events you can, because as long as you have someone that can vouch for your experience, or at least vouch for you as a person uh, within the local ecosystem, sorry about the cat, uh, it makes a huge difference. So that's how I got many of the positions I had where I knew someone, they knew that I, we worked essentially in different companies, but at least they knew me as a good person. And it kind of at least eliminates that skepticism. So they take my experience, the foreign experience, much more seriously. Great. Thanks, everybody. I know we're just at the end of time here. I want to thank everybody for their uh, comments and questions today and, uh, and our panelists in particular. So a little shout out to everybody. There's some applause from our, our listening audience, everybody, and including Anton's cat. Um, you have been listening to Career Buzz, and stories show that who you are matters. I'm your host, Mark Franklin of Career Cycles. If you have comments on que or questions on today's show, please email me. It's mark with a K at careercycles.com. Thanks to my guests today, Abraham Wyrasal, Alison Traub, Anton Sediaco, and Nadia Morrison. Special thanks to you, Teresa Didiano of the University of Toronto, for coordinating today's panel. Technical production today was by Lucy Welsh. Subscribe to Career Buzz on your favorite podcast app and find it at the podcast link at careercycles.com. Catch Career Buzz every Wednesday, 11 a.m. on CIUT. That's it for today's episode of Career Buzz. Thanks for listening.